My guest today is Tony Abbott, who was Prime Minister of Australia between 2013 and 2015. We discuss his approach to statecraft. Tony Abbott, who taught you history? Um, was there a particularly inspiring history teacher in your life? I was very lucky, Andrew. I had quite a few outstanding teachers, particularly at the Jesuit School, St. Ignatius College in Sydney. Uh, back in 1972, uh, my history teacher, year nine history teacher, was a man called John Kennedy. And I can remember in the 1972 election run-up, he asked us uh, 14 and 15-year-old kids to write an essay on what we thought might happen in the 1972 election. And I decided that unlike my compatriots who were all just listening to the Labor and the Liberal policy speeches, I'd listened to the Democratic Labor Party policy speech given by the redoubtable Vince Gare, who subsequently disgraced himself by accepting a job from Gough Whitlam and <laughs> becoming ambassador to Wilder and the Holy See. And so my essay was a little different from everyone else's because uh, uh, it covered this uh, quirky, but at the same time, important and influential, uh, distinctively centre-right party. Anyway, uh, John Kennedy was, uh, he was only a young fellow back then, but uh, many, many years later, uh, in the 2018 Victorian state election at the age of 70, he suddenly turned up as the Labor candidate for Hawthorne and against all expectations, he won the seat. So there were two future members of parliament. I think there were three future members of parliament in that class. Myself, uh, David Gillespie, uh, currently the member for Lyne in the federal parliament and uh, John Kennedy, the teacher himself who became a Labor member of parliament uh, past retirement age. I also had uh, some, some great Jesuit teachers. Uh, one of my really important mentors, a uh, Jesuit by the name of Emmett Costello, who after my dad was probably the most important person in my young life. Uh, Emmett was fascinated by history and biography. Um, Emmett had this motto, read with voracious appetite. Uh, and I did my best to take him up on that instruction. He became a Rhodes Scholar at uh, Queen's College, Oxford, studying uh, PPE. Presumably, uh, history must have played a quite an important part there in your, in your Oxford career as well. Not, not, not really, Andrew. I did uh, politics and philosophy. I'd done economics law at Sydney University, so I didn't see the need to do any economics at Oxford at an undergraduate level. Um, I did very much focus, I suppose, on uh, the, pol the politics side of, of, of PP without the E. Which is suffused by history, isn't it? So, of, course it of course it is. Of course it is. And, and particularly in my second year, when I did quite a bit of uh, subcontinental uh, and East Asian politics, uh, there was a, 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 lot of, a lot of history in it. But I guess in one sense, going back to your earlier question, uh, my mother was an incredibly important mentor in this sense. Uh, when I was a youngster in primary school, uh, just about every other week, mum would bring home a ladybird book. Now, I didn't think anyone could remember ladybird books, but Charles Moore, in one of his specky columns a couple of months back, talked about the man who put all those wonderful, wonderful accessible histories together. And I can remember back then reading about Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Richard the Lionheart. You remember the picture in uh, the, Horatio Nelson. They were all fantastically well illustrated. Do you remember the picture of the of in the Richard the Lionheart one of him standing on the steps of that acre or wherever it was with his two-handed sword over his head. Yeah, Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. It was the Ladybird books were wonderful for, for what they were, but also the illustrations they, were stay with you for they, the rest of your life, didn't they? And and I and I can remember from that time and that book the story of his minstrel, Blondin, uh, going around all the castles of the King of Austria. Uh, singing outside 
uh, knowing that if Richard were inside, he would uh, at some point uh, join in, which he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great story, isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned Gough Whitlam, who, of course, in 1975 was... Um, dismissed by um, the British um, Governor-General. And you were well, only Australian, 18... It was the, it was the, please, and it was the Australian Governor-General. So the Australian it was John Governor... Kerr. He yes, represented uh, the Queen, but she was the Queen of Australia. And uh, Sir John Kerr was very much an Australian. He was a former Chief Justice of New South Wales. And whether you agree uh, with him or not, I, I think it's wrong to characterise no, no, no. him as... No, many, many apologies. That was a moronic mistake uh, for me to have made. But um, he, you were 18 at the time and you supported Kerr, which mm -hmm. is a, uh, and of course, the Australian people in the subsequent general election by electing Malcolm Fraser also um, mm -hmm. also supported Kerr in a sense, you know, when it came to the, to the ballot box. But this was a... Um, this was a, a, a radical thing for a young um, person to do, wasn't it? You set up, or well, at least you were director later of the Australians for Constitutional Monarchy. I mean, it's a it's a really uh, key moment in your in your life and your political development, isn't it? I, I guess, Andrew. While I can't say I was a model child, and I certainly kicked over the traces at, at, at lots of at lots of points, and often was quite defiant to uh, teachers, parents, etc. Um, I, I never had a political, a politically radical phase. Uh, I never rejected religion, even though I couldn't always live up to its uh, dictates. Uh, I never felt embarrassed about my country. Uh, I was never ashamed of my family. Uh, I never thought that I was somehow uh, crippled by white guilt or male privilege or anything like that. And so it was natural for me uh, to think when Gough Whitlam was trying to govern without supply that uh, at some point in time, uh, before the money ran out and the government was reduced to complete chaos, that the Governor-General, as the ultimate umpire of the system, should step in. And funnily enough, uh, the school uh, speech day or prize giving at St Ignatius College in 1975 was at the middle of October, and when the governor, the then Governor General Sir John Kerr, was invited to be the guest of honour that day, no one would have imagined that he would be the focus of a constitutional crisis at the time he came to the school. And I can remember all of us were saying to each other uh, as we were milling around, waiting to go up and collect our books for being fourth in English or, you know, sixth in religious knowledge or whatever it was what we might say to the special guest. And we were all joking about how uh, we thought he was probably a bit of a Labor man, given that he'd been appointed by a Labor Prime Minister. Anyway, I went up and I thought, oh, bugger it, I will say something. So I, after I'd shaken his hand and he'd given my prize, I said, I said, look, Sir John, there's a big Liberal Party rally in town today. This is very dull. Why don't I take you there? Anyway, <laughs> he, he laughed at what was a pretty lame attempt at uh, uh, Bonhomie. My dad, who was watching, said I could see Father Peter Quinn's face fall. Uh, so I knew you must have said something to the Governor-General. Anyway, I got hauled in the next Monday morning and given a first-class bollocking by the headmaster for my rudeness and insolence and defiance. But... Uh, <laughs> As it happened, uh, three weeks or so later, Sir John Kerr did his duty. And he did it. As I certainly saw it, and and dismissed the Prime Minister who was trying to govern without supply. And he did that in the uh, under the constitutional monarchy in the name of the Queen. Um, mm. And, uh, of course, it's been hugely um, controversial ever since. Now we find that the Queen's, um, sorry, the King's, uh, face has been taken off Australian banknotes, and there have been calls, including by the Prime Minister, for a republic, Australia to become a republic. How how do you feel um, that will pan out over the next few years? I think it'll probably pan out badly uh, for the people who want Australia to become what uh, Nigel Farage memorably said on his last trip 
down under, he said, a dreary republic. Uh, look, uh, not all of us are royalists, uh, not all of us are Anglophiles, but I think most people appreciate that the system has worked pretty well for Australia. I think constitutional monarchy is the, I mean, if democracy is the least worst system of government, constitutional monarchy is the least worst system of democracy because it keeps out of the political fray uh, that apex of the system. And I think that's a, a very good thing. I mean, in the United States, uh, in Britain, and in Australia recently, we've seen at times fairly shambolic government, uh, but there's the crown. In the case of Britain, uh, the queen or the king, in the case of Australia, the governor general representing the monarch, floating serenely above it all, uh, a symbol of unity and continuity, and I suspect sometimes Americans look across the Atlantic and think, well, George III mightn't have been that fantastic, but there is something to be said for the system of constitutional monarchy. Yes, I, I think Americans who've read my book on George III would probably think he was quite fantastic, but I understand the all right. And I confess I, I haven't read that particular book of yours. It's <laughs> Probably yet another gap in my education. <laughs> you became an MP in 1994, uh, and then very quickly a minister in John Howard's government. Only four years later, um, you were in the cabinet by 2001. It was quite a meteoric um, career, really, wasn't it? Uh, in politics, I know, I know in Australian politics, people can get ahead very, mm. uh, very quickly. But that was surprisingly fast, even by the standards of uh, of your own country's politics, wasn't it? But I take issue with you when you use that word career, Andrew. Uh, I really dislike politicians who speak of their career, not because I necessarily dislike the individuals, but because I just think it's, it's wrong to think of a parliamentary or a public life as a career. It's a calling, it's a vocation. Uh, you've got to do it out of a sense of duty and commitment and passion and love. And if you're doing it, as a vanity project, if you're doing it because you think it might look good on your CV, if you're doing it because you think you might get lots of swish consultancies when you leave Parliament, well, frankly, you're there for the wrong reasons. And I fear that there are too many people in the public lives of Anglosphere countries today who aren't really there for the right reasons. Um, back in the Back in the uh, Hawke-Howard era, um, I mean, Hawke had a wonderful front bench, I've got to say, even though they were my political opponents. And most of them had a serious distinctions, quite apart from the fact that they uh, were ministers in the Hawke government. Likewise, the, uh, the Howard government had a very strong front bench. I mean, you know, you had former premiers, uh, you had uh, people... Uh, people who went on to become um, senior court judges and so on. Very, very capable people. Um, I think that in both the Hawke and the Howard governments, there are probably three or four people who, could, who, who, who you could readily see as credible prime ministers, not just as the sort of people who the system might throw up in extremists, but as credible uh, prime ministers. Uh, big beasts, I think they used to be called in the Thatcher era. I just don't think it's as good as that now. I mean, um, the Rudd-Gillard cabinets were much weaker than the, than the Hawke-Keating cabinets. Uh, my cabinet was much weaker than the Howard cabinet. And I think by the time Scott Morrison was, uh, was prime minister, uh, it really was even weaker. And look, I don't want to run down the current government or the prime minister because he's personally been very kind and courteous and respectful towards me but i just think that if you look at the trajectory over time we are losing uh, the ability to get really capable people into our public life because as we know that the, the the pay the pay is 
is, is not fantastic. The hours are horrific. The pressures are immense. Uh, the rewards, the psychic rewards are, are occasional. And, and most, pu most public lives end in uh, defeat, uh, disgrace or disillusionment. But and what, people do have still got to do it. <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly, and good people have got to do it. And we've we've got an organisation called Civic Future here in uh, England that uh, tries to get good young people into uh, into politics. Um, and uh, what do you think is the? You've given three or four reasons about what's um, uh, the reasoning for this for for what's going on. But do you think that uh, the kind of attacks that one gets on social media also, you just don't want to open up yourself and your family to these kind of um, pretty scurrilous and, and low assaults on your reputation that happen because of Twitter and, and other social media? Do you think that's a, an aspect as well? People say that it is, but because I never go on social media myself, it doesn't affect me. Uh, and I don't actually think anyone much in the Abbott household does. Uh, my kids were just old enough to miss the whole social media thing. Jonathan Haidt reckons that the mental health of American teenagers, particularly American uh, girls, took a massive hit after about 2010 when social media started to become really prevalent and just about every youngster had a smartphone. Now, as I said, I think I, I really missed that. I can remember one day, Back in, uh, I think it was 2000, uh, I was driving the kids up to school and we walked down the stairs to the car. Uh, Francis, my middle daughter, picked up a copy of the Manly Daily, which was the local paper. And the front cover of the Manly Daily was this big cartoon of me in my budgie smugglers uh, with a, a sort of a flaccid <laughs> Olympic torch in my hand. <laughs> because the previous day I'd pulled out of the torch relay uh, prior to the Sydney Olympics on the grounds that a whole lot of much better sportsmen than I were complaining that they hadn't got to carry the torch. What's this politician uh, getting to do? And I thought, well, I, I, I don't want to cause controversy. So I thought, anyway, Francie saw this cartoon and she burst into tears and she said, Daddy, why are they so mean to you? And I said, oh, well, it's just life. Um, just the ebb and flow of politics. It's quite um, tough, though, isn't it? Australian politics is famously it's a it's a sort of um, contact sport, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> the, um, the, you become leader of the opposition in December two thousand and nine. You win a landslide victory in the September of two thousand and thirteen, and yet you're brought down uh, by Malcolm Turnbull only two years later. I mean, Correct. it really, it's a, it's a tough old business, isn't it, uh, Australian politics? C certainly is. Um, look, uh, that period of the revolving door prime ministership, uh, a kind of a antipodean local version of the Wars of the Roses, was, uh, was, was pretty dispiriting for everyone. I think particularly the public who were looking on. And hopefully it'll never happen again. I suppose the first decade of our national life, um, uh, 1901 to 1914 involved high turnover of governments and prime ministers. But since then, there had been uh, considerable stability, but uh, uh, we did go into this period where I think we had something like uh, seven PMs in 15 years, uh, which did seem a bit uh, over the top. Um, but look, um, it is what it is. Uh, ambition is not unknown in politics. And as I often said, uh, Malcolm didn't stay in Parliament to be a minister in someone else's government. And uh, <laughs> when he got the chance, and first-term governments nearly always um, have, have their moments, when he got the chance, uh, he took it. And you, uh, when you were Prime Minister, you did have some, um, in those two years, some pretty major issues to deal with, didn't you? Can we go through a few of them? Um, uh, have we got, is there anything that Britain at the moment, which is uh, suffering from a, uh, um, a good deal of illegal migration um, with the small boats coming over the, the channel every day, um, is there anything we can learn from the Australian, uh, from your government and what you did about that? I think, yes, there is. Uh, 
you've just got to be absolutely determined to stop them. And I think the problem is that amongst the British establishment, there's nothing like the requisite determination to stop them. There's a lot of people in the British establishment, perhaps even inside the Whitehall bureaucracy, if not actually within the government itself, who think that Britain is a rich country. These are poor people. Um, what moral right have we to say no? Uh, the trouble is, well, there's, there's two problems. First of all, I think that uh, the government has its highest duty to the existing citizens. And I think government has a duty uh, to keep the character of the country. Now, that's not to say that the character of the country has to be preserved in aspic forever. But nevertheless, I think the government has a duty to its existing citizens uh, not to engage in social engineering and mass immigration uh, of people from very different cultures is really uh, a giant exercise in social engineering. I stress that the vast majority of these people, regardless of their culture, uh, are going to turn into wonderful citizens. I mean, you look at the current British cabinet, there are so many people who uh, are the product of immigration from um, all sorts of places. And they're now first-class Britons and they're all doing a good job. But nevertheless, uh, I think it is important that the government keep control. And apart from the fact that any government that loses control of its borders uh, has to that extent lost its sovereignty, I think it is important to ensure um, that we do not uh, too heavily tax the ability of communities uh, to absorb and to adjust. So I think that's the, the first thing. The other important moral consideration is people smuggling is deadly. Uh, I don't know how many people drown in the English Channel, uh, probably a lot more than we know about because um, many of these small boats are probably just sink without trace. But in the period from 2008 to 2013, uh, when the Rudd-Gillard government abandoned the Howard government's border protection policies, and we had a big wave of people smuggling, in that period, uh, 50,000 more or less people came illegally by boat. There was uh, just under 1,000 boats in total that we know about that, that made it. And we think that at least 1,000 people died at sea. And there were certainly a couple of major incidents. One incident where a people smuggling boat crashed into the rocks on Christmas Island and at least 40 people were killed in that particular instance. I think there was another instance uh, um, back in the Howard days when a boat with some 300 people went down um, in the sea between Java and Christmas Island. I think 300 plus uh, died that time. So look, uh, if we want to stop the deaths, we've got to stop the boats. So I think there is a moral imperative as well as um, a very important national sovereignty imperative in stopping the boats. So you've got to, first of all, have the will. Then you've got to address the mechanisms. Now, in the Howard time, the mechanisms for stopping the boats were um, offshore processing, first at Christmas Island, later at Nauru, uh, temporary protection visas, so that anyone who actually made it on the Australian mainland had no, had no guarantee of staying and becoming a permanent residence. And third, turning boats around. Now, <laughs> eventually the people smugglers worked out that if they scuttled their boats, the boats couldn't be turned around and the people would, for humanitarian reasons, have to be, have to be brought on board um, Australian naval or customs vessels. Um, the Abbott government, uh, had three refinements on the Howard policies. Uh, first of all, uh, we had a, a, a media blackout. Um, previously, every time a boat arrived, it was announced to the public, and that was basically shipping news for people smugglers. So we had a, a news blackout on what happened uh, on the water. Second, we established a unified command structure under Operation Sovereign Borders. Uh, led by uh, a very distinguished lieutenant general, uh, which meant that the Navy, the customs, the police, the immigration were all operating under 
a unified command rather than in different silos. Third, very importantly, where the people smugglers scuttled their boats, we would take um, the boat people on board our ships uh, and then when the time was right, we would transfer them to unsinkable orange life rafts, which we would take uh, to just outside the 12-mile Indonesian limit with just enough fuel to get to Indonesia and say, that's the way, off you go, back to Indonesia. And when the people who'd paid 10 or 15,000 bucks to the people smugglers uh, found that they had just got from Java back to Java, they were very angry and that essentially broke the people smugglers business model. And since then, there have hardly been any boats. Now, I know it's a little different with Britain. The English Channel is 20 odd miles wide at its narrowest point, whereas Java is a couple of hundred miles of uh, more open sea uh, away from Christmas Island. And Indonesia is a different country to France. But frankly, it is an unfriendly act on the part of the French uh, not to stamp out uh, the people smuggling trade out of Calais. Uh, those camps should be policed effectively by the French. Plainly, they're not being effectively policed. And uh, I think at some point in time, as well as uh, saying, if you come illegally, you'll never get permanent residency and citizenship, as well as flying people off to Rwanda uh, and overcoming this absurd uh, European hangover, uh, which seems to have temporarily stopped that from happening. You also need to have the capacity and perhaps the actuality of landing some of these people back on the shores of France, because that will certainly let the French know that Britain is serious about never, never having to endure what amounts to a peaceful invasion. Another modern, um, very modern uh, parallel, of course, with your government was over Ukraine. You were um, prime minister when Putin annexed the Crimea and uh, and started uh, the um, the fighting in eastern Ukraine. And of course, during the shooting down of the Malaysian flight MH17, which was an important. Uh, uh, moment in in your premiership, wasn't it? What um, uh, tell us about that? Well, Andrew, uh, yeah, I think that MH17 episode was probably the most fraught period in my time as PM. Uh, I, I think it was shot down in the early hours of July the 17th Australian time. Uh, the previous day, uh, late on the evening of the 16th Australian time, the Senate had passed the bill to repeal the carbon tax. So I was expecting to spend that particular day of Friday, um, I suppose, uh, savouring the triumph and telling people you elected the government to scrap the carbon tax and that's exactly what we've done. Anyway, I was in the gym at the police college where I was uh, resident in the renovation of the lodge. Um, I was in the gym at about five o'clock that morning and I had uh, Sky News on and at about quarter past five, they started covering uh, a plane crash in eastern Ukraine. And it became obvious within a few minutes that this hadn't been a crash. Uh, this had been a plane that was shot down. And by the time uh, 10 to 6, when I had to get on my morning media call, came around, it was obvious that there were quite a few, we didn't know how many, but there were quite a few Australians on board. Anyway, uh, later that morning at about 10 o'clock, I went into the parliament and I said, this is not uh, an accident, it's a crime. This is not a tragedy, it's an atrocity. And uh, we have to make sure that the bullying of small countries by big ones and uh, the trampling of human rights in the name of national aggrandizement have no place on this earth. It was a, a short, but I think damn fine speech. I regard as probably the best speech I made as prime minister because it was, as I said, it was very much to the point and it was very much uh, under a degree of pressure. 
So look, uh, I spent that day, A, talking to our own uh, uh, defence people, uh, B, dispatching Julie Bishop to the United Nations uh, because we were a uh, temporary member of the Security Council at the time, um, C, dispatching uh, Air Marshal Sir Angus Houston, our former Chief of the Defence Force uh, to Kiev uh, as our special envoy uh, and getting on the blower uh, to people uh, about this, including Barack Obama, including uh, Petro Poroshenko, the then Ukrainian president, who I'd been lucky enough to meet at the D-Day commemoration a few weeks earlier, and uh, Mark Rutte, the Dutch prime minister. Anyway, uh, a couple of days went past. Uh, there was this constant footage of the uh, Russian-backed rebels looting and pillaging and plundering uh, the crash site. It was just disgusting and appalling what was going on. And eventually I said to uh, uh, my military chiefs, um, if there'd been 38 Americans on board, what would be happening? And they said, well, the 82nd Airborne would be there by now. And I said, well, damn it, uh, we are not going to be taken advantage of or treated like this. Uh, um, I want a military plan. Now, uh, to his credit, the Australian CDF, who was a little anxious about this, uh, did get on the blower to the Dutch chief. And within 24 hours, they did have a military plan. Uh, for the securing of the site. Uh, I like to think that the Russians were listening in on our conversations and faced with the prospect of a thousand Australian soldiers coming into Ukraine, uh, along with a couple of thousand Dutch, they thought, oh my God, we can't possibly uh, have that. So uh, they agreed that uh, uh, police and investigators could secure the site. Uh, retrieve the remains and uh, such wreckages was needed for the investigation uh, to carry to carry on. So we didn't need an armed presence uh, in the eastern Ukraine, but uh, I said at the time uh, that this that Russia had become a rogue nation, that Russia uh, had become a pariah. And subsequently I had my famous shirt front conversation with Vladimir Putin where I said to him, look, uh, it's obvious what happened. A Russian missile battery came over the border, shot down that plane, 298 people, including 38 Australian citizens were killed. I don't say that you personally gave the order, but you obviously authorized that missile battery uh, to go into Ukraine. And you owe the families of the dead an apology and compensation anyway. He gave me a long rant through an interpreter uh, to the effect that uh, Ukrainian provocateurs had brought down the plane. The Ukrainians were all fascists and Ukraine had no right to exist anyway. And I said to him, look, Vladimir, I get the Mother Russia thing. I've read my Solzhenitsyn and my Tolstoy and I know about Kiev and Rus. But, but if the Ukrainians want to look west rather than east, Surely that's their right. Anyway, I got this further rant about they were all fascists and they had no right to exist. Anyway, at that stage, and this was all happening on the margins of the APEC conference in Beijing, at that stage, we were called back into the main conference. And as we were walking in, Putin, who's quite a small man, he'd only be about 5'6 or 5'7, suddenly turns around and he grabs me on the elbows, both, both hands grabbing my elbows, and he literally tries to shake me. And he says in his quite good English, he says, you are not a native Australian, but I am a native Russian. And then he kind of pushes me away. And I'm thinking, what is the meaning of this extraordinary outburst? And pondering it, I figured, well, what he's really trying to tell me is that as a citizen of a settler society, I have no concept of the blood and soil connection that he as a mystical Russian feels with all uh, the land of greater Russia. I mean, there's big Russia, there's little Russia, and there's white Russia, Ukraine being white, a little Russia. And, and that was why I, I think I knew 
way back then, if I hadn't grasped it before, that this guy sees himself as being on a mission from his God uh, to take back uh, all the lands of greater Russia. And this is why the whole Ukrainian thing is so serious, uh, not just for Ukraine, but for Europe more generally, because if he does succeed in Ukraine, there's an abs absolute certainty uh, that the Baltic states, Georgia, Moldova and Poland will be next. And at the very least, uh, there will be a new Iron Curtain down the middle of Europe. But uh, frankly, if one nasty dictator gets his way against a smaller country yearning to be free, I can think of another nasty dictator in North Asia uh, who sees another country that's regarded as a rebel province, even though it's a practically independent democracy, uh, which will be very much in the firing line. So, so I think that free people everywhere should be incredibly concerned. And uh, I think all of us are invested in the success of Ukraine. And I just think that the Ukrainian people have been utterly heroic uh, in the way they've resisted this enormity uh, which Putin wants to inflict upon them. Although you didn't send uh, Austrian forces into into the Donbass, um, you did send them into battle against ISIS in Syria. Mm -hmm. um, well, how do you think history will see the war against terror? Uh, I think that the war against terror. I mean, people quibbled about the terminology, but but uh, I think the the struggle against Islamism. Uh, which may be a better way to describe it, I think was absolutely necessary, absolutely necessary. And if we go back to 2003 and the invasion of Iraq, um, Saddam Hussein was a monster. Uh, everyone, including the people who were against the war, like the French, uh, thought back then that Saddam did have weapons of mass destruction. Obviously, at some earlier stage, he'd had them because he'd used sort of poison gas on a large scale against the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs and others. So, so uh, it was a monstrous regime. Uh, it was sponsoring terrorism. It was guilty of genocidal actions against its own people. And I thought uh, the... Uh, the uh, American-led uh, invasion was eminently justified given uh, those circumstances. Now, the tragedy was that uh, there was a plan for the war, but there wasn't a plan for the peace. And if there was any culpability on the part of our leaders at that time, it is that they didn't think adequately about the peace. In retrospect, the disappointment was that the Americans and indeed the British and the Australians uh, didn't agree that uh, the least bad of Saddam's generals should have been uh, made uh, interim president uh, with the instruction, uh, don't commit uh, genocide against your own people and don't permit terrorism against ours. And on that basis, uh, go and govern the place as best you can uh, and we'll do what we can to help. Unfortunately, Instead, uh, they disarmed the Iraqi army, which meant that there were half a million unemployed guys with guns. Uh, they disbanded the Ba'athist civil service, which meant that no one knew how anything worked, and the whole place descended into a dreadful chaos and anarchy. And under those circumstances, it's not really surprising that the most vicious and evil terrorists um, uh, found, uh, found a sanctuary. And, and I guess, uh, you know, George uh, W. Bush uh, uh, did eventually get things under control uh, with, the, uh, with the surge. Um, but then we had the whole ISIS thing uh, um, surge out of, uh, out of Syria to the gates of Baghdad. And I guess that was when um, I said to uh, Obama, look, whatever you think is necessary, uh, Australia will be there with all the strength we can muster to help. And so we send out uh, special forces, and we send our training team, uh, we spend our uh, strike fight, we send our strike fighters, 
And uh, one of the, I suppose, <laughs> one of the last things I did before being rolled was A, authorise uh, airstrikes into Syria, uh, and B, um, uh, agree that uh, 12,000 uh, persecuted minorities, uh, members of persecuted minorities, uh, would be uh, would be able to come to Australia. And I think uh, we have brought those people to Australia. And as far as I'm aware, um, they're all on the high road to being wonderful Australian citizens. But we didn't let the UNHCR pick them. We sent our people into the camps to make sure that we got people uh, from the sorts of groups that were never going to be able to resettle uh, in the Middle East uh, because they were Yazidi or, or, or uh, Christian or the other uh, many minorities uh, that were at that time in that part of the world. In 2020, you became an advisor to the um, British Board of Trade, um, and today being the seventh anniversary of the uh, of the Brexit vote, the referendum, mm-hmm. um, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on uh, Brexit, on how it's gone. Obviously, it wasn't hasn't been around for seven years. We only came out in uh, in the January of 2020. But uh, uh, tell us the, some of the um, of the sort of upshots, long term mm-hmm. historical ones, as well as the as well as the short term ones. Andrew, if there's one thing that I deplore in Britain, it's this defeatism and declinism with which the British establishment seems to be riddled. And as someone who read your magisterial Churchill biography with uh, with rapture. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. It was interesting that defeatism and declinism was rampant in the British establishment, even in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, but despite the great success of post-war Britain, it's still there. Um, there are so many people who, rather than being proud British patriots, would rather lose that uh, in this kind of amorphous Europeanism. I mean, I, I keep saying no country on earth uh, has had as big an influence on the modern world as Britain. Uh, Britain has given the world its common language, the mother of parliaments, the Industrial Revolution, the emancipation of minorities. There is so much to be proud of, and there is so much inventiveness and creativity and imagination in these islands. Uh, Britain can cope, uh, and it will overcome, and yet there's so much remoning even now, uh, and I just think it's sad. now. Um, as an honorary member of the Board of Trade, which is only an advisory body, I think I was able to help significantly in terms of getting the Australia-Britain free trade deal done because it's amazing how bureaucracies in both countries and vested interests in both countries can get hung up on all sorts of trivial things and they can let small sectional issues prejudice the long-term national interest. And I, I think at critical moments, I was able to talk to the right people to overcome that. I also think I had a bit of a hand in the fact that Britain is now uh, joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, this is a very big deal. And I can't understand why Britain hasn't uh, appreciated more just what a coup this is. For a group of uh, 11 Pacific nations to welcome Britain into their uh, trading club from the other side of the world. It's it's a tribute to the size and the success of the British economy and also to Britain's standing in the wider world. Interestingly, I think the, the one country that was most averse to Britain coming into the TPP was Canada. Uh, interesting that the French, yet again, uh, have been doing their best <laughs> to upset the British apple cart. Um, <laughs> uh, but outside of the the, the core EU um, and, and really outside of France, um, and, and I've got nothing against the French people. I, I have good friends who are French. France is a lovely country, but 
there just seems to be this fierce uh, Anglophobia um, in the French establishment. I don't think the French have ever, ever forgiven the Anglos for rescuing them twice in the 20th century. Uh, I don't think they've ever forgiven uh, Britain in particular for that. And uh, that animus persists to this day. Uh, we see it you in saw the it, French... You saw it in the, in the AUKUS uh, deal in particular. Yeah, in, we, in we saw it in the reaction to AUKUS. Uh, we saw it, we see it in the lack of real cooperation across the channel. Uh, we see it in the French trying to veto uh, Ben Wallace as the next um, Secretary General of NATO. We see it all the time. And uh, look, uh, the interesting thing about, about Britain, and one of the reasons why the, the EU project was never going to work for Britain, uh, Britain always saw this as a trade arrangement, as about freer trade, which is a good thing. But the French and the Germans in particular saw this as a political arrangement, uh, which is only a good thing if you want to lose your sovereignty. Not that I think the French or the Germans particularly did, but they were certainly keen uh, on everyone else uh, um, becoming, if you like, uh, satrapies, uh, political satrapies of France and economic satrapies of, 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 of Germany. Britain is the only major country uh, in, in sort of greater Europe, uh, which doesn't have anything to be ashamed of in its 20th century history. I mean, the French, they would have lost the, the Great War, but for Britain and America and countries like Australia, um, then they had Vichy, uh, the Spain had uh, uh, Franco, the Italians had Mussolini, and the Germans, of course, did worst of all with Hitler. So uh, again, I stress, wonderful people, great countries, let's love them and respect them. But every country carries a folk memory and these countries, I think, all had something to atone for, and the EU was a way of helping them to atone. Uh, I became quite friendly some years back with a young Italian, terrific bloke, but um, you'd ask him uh, what was the purpose of the EU, and he said it was all about preventing war and maintaining democracy in Europe. Well, you know, Italy's not going to go to war with France, uh, uh, but for the EU. Uh, these days, Germany's not going to go to war with France, but for the EU. Spain's not going to lapse back into, into dictatorship, but for the EU. But this is what they've got into their heads because of their difficult history. I think it's also a case of people mistaking the EU for NATO, uh, because it's NATO mm -hmm. that's uh, saved the peace for uh, 75 years and, uh, and and not the EU. But let's um, and, move and just, on. Just, on, just on the subject of NATO, I am convinced that um, Britain would have felt constrained in terms of its very substantial and immediate help uh, to Ukraine had it still been in the EU. And I am sure that but for Britain, the now non-EU country moving so swiftly, and this was one of the great things that Boris Johnson did achieve, moving so swiftly, along with Brexit itself, moving so swiftly uh, to do everything humanly possible uh, for Ukraine, short of actually going to war on its behalf. Uh, I think that helped to shame uh, the French and the Germans into a much more robust response in 2022 than we'd seen in 2014. What book are you reading at the moment, Tony? History book or, or biography? I'm going to insist on you mentioning one of those. Well, look, I've got a, a whole heap of books um, on my desk, uh, including a, a couple by Douglas Murray, which I feel I really must get to very quickly. Um, the Madness of Crowds and uh, the Death of the West. Um, so they're ones that I've got to get to quickly. They're both um, brilliant. I've read them both. They're absolutely superb. And, and look, I, I, I read Douglas um, just about every week in The Spectator, and uh, uh, he's one of the reasons why The Spectator is so uh, magnificently worth reading. 
I'm just trying to think uh, what was the last novel I read. Um, <laughs> it's it's easy it's easy to read, particularly modern novels, and go through them quickly and think, well, that was interesting enough, but really, was it was it worth the few hours I spent? It's it's I mean, non-fiction probably... that I'm interested in, frankly, yeah, uh, Tony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the point of this podcast, in a way. Mm. Uh, what about your favourite "What If"? What's your counterfactual of uh, history that uh, that you're interested? Well, the in? most recent, the most recent "What If" is what if President Zelensky of Ukraine had taken the Afghan option and left Kiev in a helicopter with a bag of money? Um, I am sure there would have been a fierce underground resistance to the Russian invasion, but uh, uh, Ukraine uh, leaderless. Uh, would inevitably have uh, swiftly succumbed, uh, at least at an official level, to the Russian invasion. So um, thank God uh, for a person of moral and physical courage at a critical time. You often think, um, what if if John Monash uh, had been shot on the first day at Gallipoli instead of going on to become in the words of Lloyd George, the most resourceful general in the British Army. What if Michael Gove and Boris Johnson hadn't had their uh, their problem um, in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote? Uh, what if I hadn't had Malcolm Turnbull in my cabinet? There are all sorts of <laughs> what ifs. <laughs> but, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. It is what and it is, all... and we just have to accept. We just have to accept, Andrew. Uh, that there is a providence, or, or I think Shakespeare said, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, roughly them how we will. And also it underlines the great man and woman theory of history, um, These, because uh, everyone that you've, um, you've mentioned. Absolutely right. This, this idea that somehow we are just pawns caught up in vast impersonal forces is wrong. Yes, there are tides which we can go with or go against as the case may be. But in the end, um, the world changes person by person and just one person can make a massive difference. Um, uh, Luck plays a part, circumstance plays a part, but in the end, it's courage and conviction and character uh, and the will to be better. That's what makes all the difference. And with that inspiring statement, uh, Tony, I say thank you very much indeed for appearing on uh, Secrets of Statecraft. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you to Tony Abbott for such an interesting conversation. And I look forward to your joining me on the next episode of Secrets of Statecraft. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.